Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, data sharing in the cyber threat landscape, the new blueprint for the Navy's cyber defense, and building the foundation for the cyber future. It's Thursday, October 20th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today is Cyber Talks, presented by FedScoop and CyberScoop. In case you couldn't be there, you'll get a highlight of that event later in the show today. First, though, sharing threat intelligence across the federal government. David Stern of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security tells moderator Karen Sandi of Trellix, dialogue with the private sector is critical to defending against threats. I think it's important to talk about, you know, not just that we have a public-private partnership and use that buzzword, um, but talk about some of our recent successes we've had working with uh, some of the private sector partners, international partners, um, so if, if everyone wants to Google it, rather than listening to me, that uh, you can Google JCDC success stories and, and read about them. But I want to lay out some of the interesting recent successes we've had um, working through the JCDC. So first, um, between 2021 and 2022, uh, we observed an APT campaign impacting a number of SLTT organizations. The threat actors were um, exploiting similar web application vulnerabilities, Um, zero-day vulnerabilities in these applications, and we were able to work with not just the SLTTs, uh, state, local, tribal, territorial folks who were affected, but also some of our industry partners to better understand the scope of the activity, make disclosures of vulnerabilities to the associated vendors, put out reporting, um, two different reports to the same, so that the whole community could be aware of what we were finding, and all of this was feeding back um, to our private sector partners. Uh, you know, we even went as far as um, having joint notifications and joint calls with some of their customers where CISA and um, some of our private sector partners were jointly telling their clients what we knew about the situation. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what we're getting at is it's not just information sharing, it's actually collaboration. Um, another example that's, that's kind of interesting, um, there's been a new um, ransomware group on the scene, Daishin. This is not about Daishin, it's about Daxin. Uh, a, a different type of malware. Um, one of our JCDC partners, uh, Broadcom, because we, we also like to give credit, we don't need all the credit. Uh, they discovered this uh, malware that's essentially a, a very quiet backdoor, uh, well-suited for uh, network communications, even from devices that are not directly connected to the internet. And they discovered its presence on a few foreign government networks. So they worked with us to jointly analyze the malware to notify those foreign governments uh, that they had an issue. And then we point to their reporting on the malware on our site. So those are some examples of the close collaboration we've had on cyber defensive operations that it's not just information sharing, but it's actually working together with the same common goals. Great, great. Um, I'm just curious, does CISA work with the Department of Justice? And uh, do you guys work with the Bureau? How does that relationships usually play out? Sure, so we actually have liaison officers that sit with us um, from FBI as well as NSA, Cyber National Mission Force, et cetera. All of those folks are part of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, but we work together day in, day out, sharing insights. Um, We have chat channels where we speak with, um, in real time, both the interagency partners as well as the private sector partners, and the chats are kind of tailored to specific topics, whether it be ransomware, um, some of the recent DDoS activity, et cetera. And so there's kind of like a, an ops tempo regularly day to day and through some of these fit for purpose 
uh, groups like the Joint Ransomware Task Force that you may have read about, where we work with closely with the FBI and some of the other interagency partners. Um, on the ransomware front, I do actually want to talk about some interesting um, work that we've been, been doing recently on that front. Um, hopefully, it's, it's something a little bit different um, than some of the other folks uh, mentioned when talking about ransomware earlier today. So we've had some success um, working with the researcher community, uh, some of our private sector industry partners on what we're, we're calling pre-ransomware notifications. And so some of these folks have visibility on the different gangs and affiliates um, that have splintered somewhat since some of the organized gangs have been disrupted. They all use different uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, but they all need to establish a foothold and, and an initial intrusion before they can deploy their locker. And so a lot of these folks have been making us aware of when they're aware that uh, there are ransomware gangs or affiliates that have established these footholds, that have conducted these intrusions, and we share that information uh, with the affected entity at, you know, as a trusted um, partner as quickly as we can so that they can hopefully avoid encryption. Uh, but there's some interesting, interesting things to note when it comes to this. You know, obviously, we can't do it in every case, but entities should be aware and be prepared to hear from either the CISA or the FBI on this. Uh, we work very closely together. And when we make our notification, that's not the end. These organizations you know, should be prepared to scope the incident appropriately. That's really important. Before you start responding and trying to kick the adversary out of your network, you really need to scope it. Understand the back doors, any added accounts, persistence mechanisms, um, the use of uh, remote monitoring and management utilities, uh, legitimate or trial versions. That's a, that's a big trend recently. Um, and they have to be able to investigate this adequately to remove the adversary for their, from their network. Um, one thing I'll note, just some quirks, um, interesting things about our work. Um, some of these ransomware groups, uh, they're quite organized. They have hierarchies. They have position descriptions. They call HR when they have a problem. <laughs> and they even uh, hire lawyers to help them craft better blackmails once they've exfiltrated data. Um, so that's something that we've seen, very interesting. So these are sophisticated organizations, and you know, we try to when we make these notifications and work with our partners, make them aware of that um, so they could be thorough in their investigation and understand that you know, not paying is what interrupts this business model, interrupts the investment that these groups have made um, to monetize their intrusion. Lawyers? Lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was unexpected. Um, you know, any closing thoughts, right? We have a lot of members of the industry out here. You've been working in this space for a while. Um, I'm sure there's some feedback, thoughts that you'd like to share on either how we could improve cyber threat intel uh, as a whole, as an industry, or the technologies that you've used to enable that. Uh, any thoughts around that? Sure. So if you haven't worked with us, um, please reach out uh, anytime. It's not a problem. Um, it's not an exclusive club. Anyone that has unique insights that's uniquely valuable, and you, you might be contributing something that the government doesn't know, that some of our existing partners don't know, that could really help uh, one of our partners or an affected entity that, that needs that um, to respond to an incident or to understand their attack surface or wh whatever the case may be. So I just make that appeal. Uh, feel free to always reach out. And the other thing is we are hiring. We're always hiring. Um, where as we grow out our joint cyber defense collaborative, which confusingly is a program, but also a team, um, we are looking for folks um, to work with us um, from a, an analytic perspective, but also folks that are, are experienced working with some of the different critical infrastructure or private sector entities that we regularly interface with. So encourage you to, to reach out. 
and I'm, I'll be around after the, the talk to talk to anyone that wants to know a little bit more about CISA. David Stern of CISA with moderator Karen Sandy. You can find a link to watch the entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for public sector, enables relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash government. The Navy's new cyberspace superiority vision includes three main pillars, secure, survive, and strike. Chris Cleary is the principal cyber advisor of the Navy. He explained at the Trellix Cybersecurity Summit yesterday how the document came about. It's funny when you write these vision documents, uh, the Navy is also in the process of writing a strategy document, but like anything else, there's a pecking order. You got to wait for the national security strategy to come out and then the national defense strategy and the national cyber, then the defense cyber strategy, and then the services will start putting their things out. So in the meantime, I said, hey, we've been, we've been sitting on this for a little while. Can I at least start pushing the vision of where we're trying to go? And it's less for the people in the room because you've all heard this before. You've said it yourselves. I'm not going to say anything that's really revolutionary in this space. But when we do strategy and vision documents like this, it's really trying to get the message out to the rest of the Navy and the Marine Corps, the people who don't consider this their core business space of why these things are important. More importantly, why it's important to their mission. The other thing the vision is going to start to, to, to hammer home or start to quell some of the debates that we have is you always get one side saying, oh, you know, the offensive guys want to talk offense all day and the defensive guys never get enough time and vice versa, right, or, or net ops or whatever. Well, the reality is you have to do all three of those things at the same time. So the premise of the vision moving forward is really simple. Secure, survive, and strike. And I'm going to go through each one and I'll give you a little bit of time in each one. And it really sits hand in glove with Aaron Rice's information superiority vision of modernize, innovate, and defend. So the information superiority vision, which came out about three years ago, I was the CISO for the Department of the Navy, that's how I started. Um, and that's really about ensuring the availability of information from any place to any place at any given time, because that's the way we fight. Cyberspace superiority is more about enabling military actions in and through cyberspace and the delivering of non-kinetic effects in that space, again, that stand alone uh, to do offensive or defensive things to the adversary or to enable other sort of kinetic warfighting functions to ensure the survivability of weapons systems, critical infrastructure, and so on. So when you get into the three of them and you start to unpack them, the secure one is the one that I'd like to think we're doing pretty good on. And this is the one that we really work hand in glove with the CIO organizations in their defend pillar, which is all about a lot of the things that Aaron said, and I'll foot stomp them again. And you've heard them all, and for, for industry, you're probably chasing most of these things. Zero trust. You know, the Microsoft folks within the Navy that are doing the zero, helping us with zero trust with our Office 365 deployments. Flank speed is the, the code word for that in the Navy. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Identity management. Um, uh, all the things we're doing to uh, project overmatch and the things that we're doing in those spaces to enable uh, ships at sea to do, to do their business. But we're doing pretty well there. And I use things like if you looked at SolarWinds as an example. You know, SolarWinds was an awesome attack that the Russians pulled off. But when we found out about it in the Department of Defense, we responded pretty quickly. We kind of did a pretty good job of getting our hands around that. So the fire department side of what we do, the NC docs, the NavNet Warcoms, the organizations that respond to these things are pretty well trained, pretty well equipped within relative orders of magnitude for what they got to go do. And that's what sits all within our secure thing, compliance, RMF, cyber ready. You've heard all these things probably uh, 
Uh, Tony Plater, who I know is here, has probably went down the cyber-ready path uh, to one degree or another. But then we start moving into survive, and this is really what Aaron was talking about, and this is the crux of this pillar, which all about, at the end of the day, he is correct, our systems are under attack all the time. And we use the word attack, we kind of use it, I, I have a little pushback on the way that we use that word attack. The military's got a very specific definition of the word, and that is under the laws of armed conflict, the rules of engagement, attack is defined as something with a specific intent to harm or kill personnel or damage or destroy equipment. For the military people in this room, you always hear them as the four Ds. You know, degrade, deny, delay, disrupt, destroy, five Ds. Dodged up, dip, dive, dodge, right? Um, but at the end of the day, how do we respond to these things? And the military is uniquely positioned to respond uh, to attacks, and we do it all the time, and particularly when you look at the Navy with things like surface operations on a surface ship. A warship is designed to be attacked. It's part of its fundamental survivability uh, characteristics when it's built. When we lay down the keel, we're thinking about an adversary wanting to put a missile or a torpedo into the side of that to degrade its ability to do its mission, which is really not the way we build merchant ships. In the 40s, we built merchant ships that were, we were concerned about adversary submarine activity. We don't build merchant ships like that today, but we still build warships with all of those sort of survivability characteristics built into them. Well, as you move from into that same survival sort of theme over to uh, with resiliency and survivability, then you start talking about defense critical infrastructure. And really what we're, we're beginning to acknowledge is we haven't put as much attention in these areas as we should have. Survivability of weapon systems from a physical standpoint, yes, we're getting better at doing survivability of weapon systems from a non-kinetic standpoint. But survivability of defense critical infrastructure, the things that we depend on, water, power, communications, wastewater, cooling, all of those things that enable our missions uh, afloat, which really, in the Navy's instance, could impact missions ashore. For the Air Force, it's much more relevant because most of what they do is ashore, you know, base operations to get airplanes up off the ground and all the things that enable that. It's a little bit different for the Navy when we go to sea, but we still need fuel to be brought to us. We still need uh, our NICTAMs, uh, our, our, the ways that we push communications out to the fleet, the way that we do communicate with special platforms. Um, the way that we uh, enable command and control. All our maritime operation centers are shore-based uh, and they live within our kill chain the way that we're gonna fight at sea. So we have to ensure all the critical infrastructure around of those um, is designed to be attacked, designed to be resilient, designed to be survivable. Uh, and arguably, we haven't done as good of a job on that. Um, and that's kind of this next phase. And then we move into my favorite one. So the first one's secure, we talk about all the time. Arguably, that's most of the people in this room are in that secure realm. Survive, we're talking about more, which now we talk about OT and some of the companies are moving to that space. Strike is the one we really don't spend a lot of time talking about. And for probably some good reasons in the beginning, and I think I, the last time I was at one of these, I was making the joke that, uh, you know, I, I grew up through the Cybercom lineage. You know, I was a naval officer, worked at Cybercom, worked in a variety of OPTs. And there was a time not that long ago that you couldn't even say the words computer network attack in a skiff. That's how sensitive it was that we did these things. 2010, we stand up US Cybercom. 2016, we established the mission forces. And in the mission forces, we begun to say, hey, there's this mission that we call offensive cyber operations. Well, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to say if there's an offensive cyber operation mission, there's gonna be some capability requirements to enable that mission. And furthermore, as that mission gets further brought into the Department of Defense across all of the services, the services have some responsibility to acquire capabilities to allow us to maneuver in and through cyberspace, which is really what the strike piece is all about. Because offensive cyber operations is now this new warfare domain that we are, to one degree or another, still in the infancy of trying to embrace. 
again, we've only been around as a cyber organization. If we want to call the line in the sand, uh, October or November of 2010 when US Cybercom was established, that was the beginning of this space from a Title X perspective, from an actually means and methods of warfare. As a principal cyber advisor that has the ability to kind of not always talk security and resiliency and cyber survivability, but have some responsibility to be talking about the other side of the mission. And what the vision really talks about is we need to talk about those three things in concert. One doesn't outweigh the other. It's not to do so offensive cyber operations takes away from defensive cyber operations or to go do Office 365 to enable zero trust sort of structures doesn't take away from something we're trying to do in the other two domains. Because at the end of the day, and I'm very kind of, I get on my soapbox a little bit about this, you know, the Department of Defense's job is the delivering of lethality or the protection of lethality being delivered upon us. That's what we do. That is the business of the Department of Defense. And how we talk about that varies. But when you look at the platforms that we build, I think I've said this once before, maybe many of you maybe heard this next thing. Uh, I would say, you know, what does the Columbia-class submarine, the Joint Strike Fighter, and the Abrams tank all have in common? Well, none of them were designed to deliver humanitarian aid. They are warfighting systems. They are weapons platforms. You do not want to find yourself on the business end of most of what we do in the Department of Defense. That's our job. And our adversaries are deterred by our ability to be really, really good at that, whether it's flying airplanes, whether it's sea operations, undersea operations, Navy Special Warfare, amphibious operations with the Marine Corps. That's our business. And, when, and as we begin to continue to embrace this new domain across all of those three pillars, secure, survive, and strike, I want our adversaries to be every bit as concerned looking down the pointy end of our non-kinetic capabilities as they are looking down the pointy end of our kinetic capabilities. And I think there's a responsibility and an obligation that as we continue to move in this space that we will work with industry to figure out the best ways to do that. Because as a guy who came from industry and who has every intention of going back to industry at some point, you know, there's a one true, there's a truism. The military makes nothing. We get everything that we need from the industrial base. Shoelaces, boots, uniforms, bullets, rifles, planes, airplanes, missiles, software. All of that comes from this community. So as we go to open up the discussion points with things that, we are, that have been a little sensitive, how do we begin to talk openly about offensive cyber operations? Because there is a way to talk about it openly, not having to always require to go back into a skiff. because we're not going to get into capabilities. I'm not going to talk about zero days. I'm not going to talk about aim points in a room like this. But just like I know the Columbia-class submarine goes underwater, is very, very quiet, has nuclear weapons, I don't know the specifics of any of those things. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you, because those are, in fact, classified. But I know what the platform is designed to go do, and we talk about it openly all the time. How can we begin to have that conversation with some of the more edgy topics that all encompass the cyberspace superiority vision um, that we need to moving forward? So uh, I'm interested to hear from all of you at some point, particularly if you have interesting ideas, the ways to use your capabilities to enable those three missionaries or these three ways to uh, uh, carry out our vision. But more importantly, it's about taking this vision outside of this room and bringing it to the people that don't necessarily speak our language. And I think that's a lot of what, what Aaron and I do is kind of, you know, it's easy to have these conversations in our respective circles for people who do this every day. It's a lot harder when you're talking to fighter pilots, submarine drivers, and Marines who acknowledge they rely on this infrastructure, but don't always have an appreciation for how it's defended, how it's delivered, uh, and 
the force multipliers of when you start getting better at delivering effects in and through that space, how it supports their respective missionaries. Chris Cleary, the Navy's principal cyber advisor. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire speech in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents in a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. You can learn more at sfdc.co slash PSH. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month's about two-thirds complete this year. Chris DeRussia is the Chief Information Security Officer of the United States. He says the basics are important, but not enough for Cyber Awareness Month. So I like to always sort of do a, hey, there's, let's think about three things that we can do. But like, it's 2022. So I think we can move beyond, let's keep our software up to date, let's make sure we've got MFA in place, and let's use a password manager with MFA. Let's talk about, with this community, this business community, this government community, this leadership community, what are three things that you can do when you're walking back into your organization and to really kind of help move the ball forward and ensure that your organization is prepared? And you know, the first one I'd say is, and this one may be a stretch for some of you, but for some it may not be that hard, try to get your senior most executives to do a tabletop on a lights out, type of situation for your organization um, themselves. You know, it doesn't need to be long, it doesn't need to be complex, but try to get them to do it themselves and sit in those chairs, because when these things happen in a serious way, they will be in those chairs, and you can't role play it, you can't have somebody else role play for them. They won't learn, they won't learn what they're gonna wanna know when they're sitting in the chair for real. That's a service to them. Try to, try to get your senior leadership to, to, to see the importance and value in that. And I'm sure some of you already do that, and if you are, that's fantastic, good for you. It is kind of a hard thing to get a senior executive's time and attention for anything, frankly, especially something that may not be part of your organizational fabric and process. So try to weave that in. Number two, think carefully about your role when you have a major incident. What kind of decisions are you gonna be asked to make? You can look at the type of mission you're, you're, you're sitting over. You may be in IT and cyber. If you're the on-call person for a SOC, you know what you're gonna do. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who may sit over a critical HR or financial uh, application in your business. You're gonna have a role. Your work could be impacted if you have a major event. Think, think about it, think it through, talk to your team about it. Get prepared, what kind of questions are you gonna ask? Learn how to spell that difficult person's last name so you're gonna find them quickly in the address book when you wanna contact them in two seconds, not what's that person's name, right? I mean, it seems like a small thing, but, but it's important. Like having little checklists of sort of what you're gonna to wanna to know and what you're gonna to wanna to think through and what you're gonna to wanna to do, um, it really will help you when you're in these moments. You know, in my field, I've chosen this path. I've had a lot of them. And so it becomes more kind of regular when you get into these things, you sort of just kick into gear and go. But if you haven't, and that's not a normal part of your day, you know, start thinking about this, because it's 2022, we're headed more digital, things are getting more serious. You know, invariably somewhere in your, your career path, you're gonna have to do things. So that's number two. Um, you know, number three is, think about something that you can do now 
in your business unit that could help the security and IT teams do their jobs better. And I know that's like a little unfair because you know, you may be saying, well, they just make my jobs difficult. But think about if you're sitting in government agency and if you've had a business exception for multi-factor authentication for 15 years, you know, 15 years ago, we weren't as concerned about a conflict in Ukraine leading to a potential attack on the homeland here for a cyber critical function. And we are now, like we're walking around talking about how worried we are about that and sharing uh, information with critical infrastructure sectors and having briefings. And, you know, I mean, these are, these are kind of real things now and they're going to be moving forward. It's not the moment in 2022, it's that this is the new normal. And so think about the things that you may, you may not have been there when that exception came into place and you may not even understand why you have it or don't yet. Ask these questions. You know, I'll tell you, you'll find that the IT and cyber side will be very happy to have the conversation with you. Um, they're, they're, they're waiting. So if you're on the business end, you know, um, really kind of think about, you know, I just gave one example, but really just kind of, the point is have a conversation with them about what it is that they see your role as and what could you do to be more helpful in that. And I know you, 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 know, you should expect them to reciprocate too. And the thing that you should expect is that you know, they've got to think about your users, they've got to think about your employees, they've got to think about the customer experience and of all the solutions and tools that they're putting out. And you should have that conversation with them back. And that's that two-way conversation that we really need happening. So there's your three things, okay? But also do the first three that I talked about because if we don't have, you know, up-to-date software and things like that, we're, we're going to have real problems. Okay, um, the cyber executive order, 14028. So it's crazy that we issued that in May of 2021. It's been a while. Where we're at now, I would describe, is we've issued about five different policies from that out of the Office of Management and Budget, um, which is a, a lot. And all of these have pretty significant actions and tails to them. So we are firmly in implementation phase. And what we're doing now is just putting these things into plans of action, uh, measuring progress, you know, for those who, who, who keep score in the Federal Information Security Modernization Act, FISMA, um, we're doing our annual guidance, so that's important because that drives what federal agencies will do for the next year, focus on as their priorities, and we put metrics behind that measuring performance. So those are all the things that we're working on right now to kind of go and make sure that we're getting the outcomes that we sought out for. I want to talk about one in particular, um, M2209, which is the Federal Zero Trust Strategy. You know, I want to be clear about that. Um, we didn't we didn't seek to write the pure end state document for zero trust, right? That wasn't like the point of that document. The point of that document was to say, we know our user base, we know our federal agencies, we know where they're at in maturity. How do we get them all based on that, ready to go on this journey and then a consistent starting point across the board so that we can benchmark progress and have ways of sharing best practices and lessons learned throughout implementation? What are the starting points the actions that we can give them that are sensical, make sense in 90% of the cases, and are things that we can get real progress and have them be ready for the next levels of maturity. And how do we do that across all of the pillars that they're gonna need to focus on so we're not feeling really good about implementing something over here and forgetting that like, if we don't understand the data, the long pole in the tent, and know where it is and have it labeled and classified appropriately, what are we doing, right? And, and you can't leave any pieces of, of, of it behind. 
And so for us, that was really one key goal. The other was actually quite strategic and st strategy-based budgeting. And, and that's something I'm excited about because we're sort of living that right now. We in government have um, three budgets that we're dealing with at any given time. The one you're in, um, so for us, like, well, actually, we just, we just came out of the fiscal year 22. But, but, you know, right now we're building the fiscal year 24 budget is the point. And what we're able to do now is say we have a strategy that we built with public comments, so it's like best of breed, best practices approach. We've drawn that into the budget process. We have implementation plans from every single federal agency on how they're going to implement that over a three-year period, funding estimates in there. And then we broke it all out by capabilities in a budget data call and said, like, put your numbers into these categories so that we can see if you're tracking exactly to the progress that we've laid out in the strategy. That gives the resource management officer side something easy to deal with. They can say, zero trust strategy, X amount of dollars, makes sense to everybody. They can turn to us, we stare at the data and the 30 capabilities and the tooling behind it, and we say, makes sense to us, or doesn't. And then we can all feel confident that we're at least making the right types of investments. Now, execution risk, you know, all of those types of things, they're still there, they're still present. We'll, we'll, we'll work with agencies through that. But I do think it's a critical thing to have an organizing construct that simplifies it for folks who can't get too complicated with this topic, they don't have time. And it really gives you a kind of way of, uh, of just consistently moving forward across a huge, massive distributed function like federal government. I don't know, I'm kind of a boring person. My wife likes to say cybersecurity is my first love. She's not right, but like I do get excited about this because I really want to see progress here and I think that we have to start getting mature in our field about leaving models behind us. We have to leave some strong footprints in for people to not just have one great year at something, but to say here's a construct that you can follow. You can change it. You can put your own strategy and policy direction in place. But if you look at what we did here, do that with whatever you want to do next is my advice to like someone five years from now. But, but, but keep the model in place because you, it really is important here to help people kind of understand like how to keep making progress along this path. So that's where we're at right now. You know, implementation phase is exciting. Um, hopefully you, you kind of find that anecdote um, interesting. And you know, I know you all sit in this ecosystem. You see a various piece of the pie. We really appreciate your partnership. I appreciate conversations with, with folks in this room, in this community, letting us know what they're seeing on the ground, saying, Chris, that sounds great, but you know, I'm seeing this different outcome on the ground. And that's right. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a hard, long-term thing that we're working on. And I think that that open channel of communication and just like staring at this for what it is, um, is exactly how it needs to be. But let's also stay positive about the fact that we are making progress and that we're, we're, we're putting something in motion together and let's just believe that we really can make this change together. So thank you very much and really enjoy this day. Federal CISO Chris Russia at Cyber Talks Today. You can find a link to the video of that speech in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher 
Asher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.